Welcome to Strength in the Numbers. My name is Andrew Codd, accountant, author, and commercial finance entrepreneur. And it's my job each week to bring you leaders in finance and business and deconstruct with them their real stories, insights, and hard-won lessons into practical advice on the key strengths and qualities you need to remain relevant in accounting and finance today, as well as the steps you can begin to take to elevate the impact you make to have a fun, successful, and rewarding career in accounting and finance. Now let's go over to the show. I'd figured out what it was that I really loved that really gave me energy. And so I was following that thread and thinking, okay, well, that's, that's what I want to do more of. I want to think more about what makes organizations and teams effective. I mean, it's the same idea as thinking about what makes a country or a region prosperous. It's just that I got more interested in the smaller scale. Hi, everyone, and welcome to this week's Strength in the Number show. Now, you might have actually recognized the voice of this week's guest mentor, particularly if you've been reading about or listening into any behavioral science type podcasts or books, because our guest this week is Caroline Webb, CEO of How to Have a Good Day, which is a firm that shows people how to use insights from behavioral science to improve their working life. And Caroline's book on the topic, How to Have a Good Day, has been published in 14 languages and 60 plus countries. And on top of all that, Caroline's also a senior advisor to McKinsey, where she was also previously a partner. And it was great to get Caroline onto the show because her book's been recommended by a number of the other guest mentors on the show. And and Caroline was very helpful in taking some of those insights from the book, from her work, and making it very applicable to what we do in accounting and finance, particularly given our roles are very analytical. We talk very much about how we can leverage our brains, psychology, neuroscience, to help ourselves discover how we can be at our best and also how to bring out the best in our colleagues which is very important for us in finance, given that we're there supporting the rest of the business. So we need to be able to do this for ourselves, but also for uh, the rest of our organizations too. Now, some of the bits of advice we deconstruct are around how we can figure out what we really love, the things we really love doing, um, how we can also fix things we're perhaps terrible with. Um, Also very important around setting team norms uh, to make sure we're more participative and some ideas and strategies that we can contribute better around and also finding our own cross checks and, and triggers to make sure that we're doing what matters most. And Caroline also shares another emerging theme with her work, which is how to have a good day with all this uncertainty, given the current environment we're living through. So hope you also enjoy this episode. If you do, please remember you can find detailed timestamp show notes, key quotes, resources, and ways to connect with Caroline and more at sitnshow.com. And we always really appreciate when you recommend the show to colleagues. You can subscribe on all the major platforms, iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, YouTube and Spotify. Look, so that's enough for me. So without further ado, over to Caroline and the show. Caroline, welcome to the show. Delighted to be here. Thank you. Delighted to have you. In fact, actually, I have a small confession to make to you and our audience. I'm a bit of a fan. Uh, got your book a number of years ago. And it was only when I was talking with another guest mentor on the show, Dan Crum, the Kansas City Chief CFO. Yeah. He was another fan of yours. And we said, we joke, oh, we should get Caroline on the show. And hey, presto, you're here. Fine. So thank you. Thank you so much <laughs> for making the time for us. Um, I saw not to be too, too starstruck, but uh, would you mind maybe share with our audience a bit about your journey and your career? Sure. I'm an economist. I can say that. I can say I'm an economist proudly. It's been a sort of meandering path. I initially worked in the public sector. I was a central banker, which you know some of your listeners might groan at. Um, but I was a central banker for the first uh, decade of my professional life. But I was interested in economics because it was a human science. I thought it was 
really pretty cool that you could be rigorous about human potential and performance. And I was interested in that at sort of large scale, sort of countries and regions and so on. But then over time, I lost sight of the human being and wanted to get closer to that idea of what is it that makes it you know, a human thrive and succeed. And so I actually went to McKinsey and I was there for 12 years. And I went with an intention to stay for two and maybe, you know, work on organizational change, learn about leadership and, you know, what made for great teams. But there we are. I found my path there and had a wonderful time. Started the leadership practice there with a bunch of others and then left eight years ago to run my own little company and uh, write a book, which is uh, thank you. How to have a good day. Um, so now I have a lovely portfolio life and uh, get to talk to wonderful people like you. Hey, hey, no, look, thank you. Thank you. I, I think you're sort of on the play about how good it's been. I, in fairness, that the book is it, it did rather well. Um, but also, but 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 also, it's interesting making a move from economist to McKinsey. I mean, is that is that typically what some you know some people would have done previously, or or you know when you go to McKinsey, do people come from different backgrounds? People come from all sorts of different backgrounds. Actually, in the in the group of people that I joined with, there was actually someone who'd worked in the theatre. You know, there were obviously. Plenty of people who had MBAs and so forth, but no, it was very diverse. But I think it was definitely a huge move to step out of economics as a profession and then say, oh, actually, I want to do something a little broader. I want to do something a little different. And a lot of my, especially having sort of been in economics and public uh, um, public policy for quite a while, people were kind of baffled that I would make such a yeah. radical choice. <laughs> I'd figured out what it was that I really loved that really gave me energy. And so I was following that thread and thinking, okay, well, that's, that's what I want to do more of. I want to think more about what makes organizations and teams effective. I mean, it's the same idea as thinking about what makes a country or a region prosperous. It's just that I got more interested in the smaller scale. <laughs> I like the analogy you use there. That's an excellent one. <laughs> and like, I think that's where we sort of go with this uh, podcast is actually sort of, we obviously try and make sure that finance and accounting is done well in our organizations, but mm. really it does come back down to people. So even if we go more micro still, it's like helping people understand what their strengths are, what is they value, talents, beliefs, and then what does the ideal outcome or career look like? And, and us sharing our conversation here helps them on that journey to get from where they are to where they ideally would like to get to. I suppose in terms of our organizations, economies in general, you know, what, what sort of things should we be looking at to, to help on that journey? Well, if I think back to when I was in that first professional decade, it was actually, you know, I, I talk about it very lightly now, but it was quite traumatic to realize that I'd geared my whole career plan around being an economist, you know, maybe working for the IMF or the World Bank, and then realizing I actually didn't much like academic economics and thinking, oh dear, okay. And actually it took me quite a long time to let go of that idea of what I was supposed to do okay. because I had this strong sense of, well, this is what I've been pushing for for many years. I sat down with a blank piece of paper. I can still remember if what I honestly think I'm actually good at, like really distinctively good at and you have to push past feeling of being a bit immodest in doing that but you know I, I thought okay well I think I'm quite good at getting on top of new topics very quickly and I really enjoy the kind of feeling of working in time uh, tight little teams that are you know working hard and fast against you know really interesting goals and and so I, I just made a little bit of a list and as I looked at that I thought okay if these are my strengths and these are my interests, this is what really kind of seems to lift me. What are the logical opportunities or ideas for getting more of that into my life? And it's funny, I've done that now every two years or so. And I won't 
lie sometimes the answers are actually quite challenging they don't give you an easy path forward you know there was one point I've been at McKinsey for a few years and I did the same exercise and I realized that actually I really liked coaching and facilitating and it's it's not a high status thing within McKinsey to say you know I loved Um, and I thought oh this means I'll probably have to leave and oh you know it's a shame because I'm quite happy here and but then uh, you know once you decide to focus on well what is it that I love then you start to be creative and seeing opportunities you would otherwise have missed and it turned out it was perfectly possible to be a, a leadership and executive coach at McKinsey uh, and indeed to be a partner there eventually so sure. but you need to have that clarity of what it is you're trying to maximize what you're trying to optimize for and if you don't stop to think about it for yourself then it's obviously <laughs> you've got much less chance of finding it like Caroline, do you think this is sort of a relatively new phenomenon where organisations are a bit more open to people to do this? Because um, I know when I, when I started in accounting and finance, it was a fairly set job description. In fact, actually, when I was doing my training contract, you'd be sort of making teas and you'd be doing a lot of the dog's work around. Um, no one asked you, what would you know, what are your strengths and, and what are your interests? And let's make an ideal job for you based around those. Do you think there's been a change in that one? I mean, obviously, if you're really terrible at something, you need to fix it. I mean, if you're chronically late, you need to fix it. If you're, you know, just terrible at, you know, doing one particular type of work, then you might, if it has to be part of your day job, you know, maybe nobody can hear you when you speak up in a meeting, then, you know, yes, of course, you need to, you need to fix that. But I think the evidence has piled up, partly thanks to Gallup having done a lot of research on this, to show that when people play to their strengths, when they're encouraged to play to their strengths, um, then magical things happen. I mean, that's obviously not the way to put it in the research, but you, you see higher productivity, you see higher uh, performance in terms of all of the hard metrics that you know that we like to look at as numbers people. Um, and to see that translate into you know higher retention, higher profitability, it's very interesting. And of course, it makes sense because if you think about if you're focusing on things that you're not very good at, you're slightly uptight the whole time in the language of the way that I talk about it in, in the book, it's, you know, people are in defensive mode. They're not able to think as clearly because they're in the middle of a fight, flight, freeze response a lot of the time, dealing with stuff that feels difficult and hard and not natural. So if you're actually going with the grain a little bit more and seeking out things that you know give you energy and where you can shine, of course you're more likely to do extraordinary things. Of course you're more likely to come up with good ideas. So it doesn't mean that you necessarily change career. But if you can think about, well, okay, when I work with this particular type of topic or work in this particular type of way, I seem to do better, then, you know, you can do this in a very small way from day to day within the confines of your existing job and still get some of those benefits. I don't know if it's just your character, Caroline, or or it definitely comes across in the book. You you make a lot of this practical. (laughs) You know, it's like, I feel like you've lived it yourself (laughs) to some degree as well. You You know, so like I just look around, I just don't know how many of us are actually sort of doing that. We're finding excuses for being busy, being a bit overloaded, Mm -hmm. uh, meeting deadlines. Uh, A big thing in finance is making sure people get the right information, the right time and the right way. So we're constantly making excuses for this. And the thing is, if we were to maybe stop for a minute and actually think a little bit more strategically about ourselves and our organizations too. I mean, if you think about it, what does finance do? Well, it's there to help organizations or clients make better decisions. And since we sort of look at those outcomes in terms of financial indicators, and and now it is a bit more non-financial as well. When you you look at it, if we're making better decisions, that means more companies are doing better things and they must be driving more value for society. 
because that's how companies can function. They function in society. So yeah. it's a really great platform to have a meaningful career is something in finance and accounting. It's just how do we get people to, to hit the brakes sometimes and actually have those conversations with themselves or, or others? Yeah, I think that's right. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we were as analytical about ourselves as we are about the numbers in front of us, as, as we are about, you know, the, the success factors of our organizations? And we can be. And I think that's, you know, that's obviously why I got so interested in this, this world of behavioral science, broadening out from, you know, pure economics to, to neuroscience, psychology, behavioral economics, because it turns out that there are really, really predictable things that we can do to be more effective. They're not that hard. And one of them that you just hinted at, which I think is really counterintuitive for any hardworking professional, is the idea that less is more, Mm. that actually taking breaks will make you more effective, will lead to you seeing new insights, will, you know, you feel like you're working less, but you're actually, your brain is still processing in the background when you go for a walk, when you take a break, when you just go and get a coffee. And when you come back and you suddenly see a new way forward, that's not coincidence. That's actual encoding consolidation of information that's happening in your brain when you step away. And it doesn't happen if you don't step away. (laughs) And so, you know, there's all sorts of interesting studies that show that the longer it is since someone's taken a break, the poorer the quality of decisions, the level of adherence to hand hygiene guidelines in hospitals, which I think is a sort of highly relevant topic. Very relevant, yeah, yeah. Right. And you can see that hand hygiene rates, so by that I mean using hand sanitizer as appropriate, drops the longer it is someone in a hospital, a nurse, a doctor has has had a break. Why? Because our brains get tired. tired yeah. And so, you know, the fact is that you'll make better choices and you'll see new insights if you do take thoughtful steps to just, you know, get up for two minutes. It doesn't even have to be that long. You know, just to give you give yourself a break. Like actually, I was just sort of kicking myself. Like, That's the example I should have been using because, like, my team would be sick of me saying less is more. So, sort of my mantra. And um, and I was actually you just reminded me also. I think around that section in your book as well. I think you might have said it just before. It was about the Israeli judges and making oh, yeah. the decisions around parole um, or whatever on an empty stomach. I completely can raise that feeling. <laughs> I, you know, that word hangry, I think that definitely goes. Uh... No, but but seriously, it's like you're just sharing these anecdotes with people, but they're backed up by well yeah. understood and well generally received research, right? Yeah, absolutely. And and what's interesting is that sometimes there have been years of observational data in psychology. And now, you know, with increasing refinements in brain scanning, you can see, well, what is going on in the brain at the same time that means that this happens? And that's that's definitely what's happening with us uh, understanding now what happens when we supposedly take a break. I think there's much more understanding what happens in the resting brain. And it's not resting at all. It's working very hard, but it's just it's doing something different to the point where now, if I know I've got a big piece of work to do, I will very deliberately plan to do it in two bites rather than say, okay, I'm just going to nail this in one block. I will deliberately say, okay, I'm going to try and get a night's sleep in between, or at least I'm going to schedule a break because I know that I'll come up with better ideas as a result. So there's really practical things that flow from this that I think don't require you to totally re-engineer your lives, but actually can make a big difference to the impact you can have. And talk about impact again that's what we try and help people on this show it's one it's helped create more influential finance and accounting professionals but also help them deliver impact in their organization so less is more is, is definitely one great approach you know are there any sort of maybe one or two elements that you sort of uh, how do you say caroline you, you know drink your own kool-aid from in terms of particularly more than other ones i mean do you have one or two favorite ones in the book that you like using yourself very often well, you know, there are about a hundred tips in the book, and oh, you know, so many. 
No, well, so actually the book was a lot longer before I obviously you have to be thoughtful about well, how much can anyone absorb. And um, so I had to decide to, to cut out a bunch of stuff and I used a number of filters. One of them was, you know, have I seen this work for lots of different types of people, different countries, uh, different roles, different ages and so on. Another filter that I used was, do I do this myself? Do I really, do I really, really take this advice myself? So... <laughs> So it makes it very hard to choose because generally I do use uh, this stuff on myself. And I would say that through using that advice on, you know, not multitasking, taking breaks and so forth, I, I worked a couple of hours less on average than everyone else that I knew around me at McKinsey. But I think another thing that really, I think was really transformational for me personally is the fact that to understand that we only perceive a part of reality at any given time. It's hard for us to wrap our heads around because by definition, we don't know what we don't know, but our brain can only process a certain amount of information at any given time. We're surrounded by trillions of pieces of data all the time. And so we're constantly seeing a bit of what's happening around us and our brain is just filling in the gaps and making us feel like, oh no, we saw everything. No, no, got it. I, I'm, I'm on top of this. I, I've nailed it. I, I know exactly what's happening. The truth is we're filtering out subconsciously so much of what's around us. We're just missing it without realizing. I, I was going to I was going to say you're talking to accountants or finance professionals who who regard themselves as very objective. It's like I know, and, and, and you think, oh my gosh, you know, <laughs> is this? But surely, but surely, accountants and finance professionals are different. No, no, no it no. turns out, it turns out <laughs> that even even us very very analytical types, you know, so there have been studies that have shown you put a bunch of numbers in front of people, you test first of all that they're numerate and they're able to process and and you know answer some basic um, calculation questions, and then you layer on a political dimension that you know means that the numbers either look like they support one view or another view there was one study that was done with gun control actually and if someone is uh, pro-gun control then they will get the numbers right they'll do the calculations right when the numbers go in the direction that they think should be correct and when it, the numbers are presented to them in a different way they'll make a silly calculation error so when we come in with a strong prior that an investment is a good decision or you know that someone's budget you know maybe maybe we think they're a bit of a jerk you know this person who's submitted a budget it is going to shape what we perceive and we think we're being totally objective but we're not so the other thing that i've learned to be very deliberate about is always saying okay I might not have the whole picture before I say never or always, or I'm very absolute about something. I just say, okay, what if this is not true? What could I be missing in a year's time? If this has all gone wrong, what was it that I missed? I, w I did some work with the risk function of a bank and we, we developed some of these sort of little habits that helped to just flush out the blind spots a little bit more firmly. You can't ever completely control your unconscious. Mm -hmm. But the more you can develop some of these habits that just acknowledge that you have blind spots, then the more likely you are to, to catch them and to, to have some chance of making sure that the thing that got filtered out unconsciously by your brain suddenly actually comes back into the frame. Well, but even just having this conversation is going to heighten some awareness around it. Caroline, I, I really appreciate that. I'm also going to try to be respectful for your time because I'd love to just keep, you know, as we do on the show, deconstructing, deconstructing, deconstructing. <laughs> go for so, it, go for so it. yeah, I was going to, I was going to say. So, in terms of those habits you mentioned, mm. they'd be very useful for our audience, particularly given the the roles you play in helping make better decisions. Like, mm. what might some of those habits be that we could sort of do to make sure we're not being led completely by our subconscious bias? 
Yeah. Well, it helps to, so when you're on your own is the hardest because you don't have anyone else to cross check you. And there's a CEO that I coach who is really one of the smartest people I know, and he will always get to an answer very quickly. But we've talked a lot about this, this the existence of cognitive bias, and he's, you know, he's well-read himself. And so, you know, we've developed a little habit where he will now say to himself, and he'll say it to the team, he'll say it to the, his colleagues, he'll say, okay, what am I missing? What are we missing? And it, it's going to help you to get a little routine around this, to develop a phrase. Might, that might not be the right phrase for you. Another client of mine really liked, uh, she alighted on the phrase, what would a more positive assumption be? So, you know, you have to find your own cross-check sentence. It could be, is that if you hear yourself say always or never, that's a good trigger for me. So is that always true? Is that never true? And that's a very good trigger for me, actually just taking a step back before a meeting and saying, okay, well, what is really matters here? Or if I'm getting bogged down in the middle of a meeting, just to say, okay, okay, what really matters most here? Knowing that I'm more likely then to see what matters most if I've just said that really tiny thing. It's so, so basic in a way, but so deep. They're nice little resets, aren't they? They're like hitting a reset button a bit, you know, to try yeah. and bring you back to a more open space. It's... Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, nothing complicated there. It, nothing, nothing that we, none of us can no, do. No, no, no. And I think in a team, it's actually even easier because you can set team norms and you can say, okay, we are going to have a, a habit which says if we're about to throw something out because we all think it's a terrible idea, let's just go around the room and have everybody say, what's one thing we want to rescue from this? Or the yeah, other way around. If nice. everybody is, you know, super pro and, you know, an idea and you're all about to sign off without that much discussion, just say, okay, if you had to say there's something that might worry you about this yeah. and you hear from everybody you have to hear from everybody otherwise the, the risk is that you st you end up hearing from the positive person or the negative person all the time and it starts to feel like oh well they would say that if you get everybody to contribute then you've got an interesting rich discussion and then the pre-mortem of course and to say okay it's five years from now this was a disaster what was it that we missed yeah that works for a lot of teams too. I mean, you can have a bit of fun with that. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've tried to do a bit of few plays in that pre-mortem, a bit more choice language and, and, and whatever, and try and make it more short-term. Again, yeah, I yeah. suppose that's that's the influence of the stock markets and whatever. But I do think that yeah. just even even just those earlier questions you're having, Caroline, really, really, like, again, within everyone's grasp, all the listeners' grasp, we can grasp these. And they just might be the difference between making a great decision and maybe a not-so-great one. <laughs> You know? Absolutely, absolutely. So, so look, uh, I, before before I sort of fire some rapid uh, questions at you, Caroline, <laughs> do, do, you know, in terms of the journey, Dan, who again is a fan of myself, we obviously started uh, falling into behavioral science by complete accident because we found that, you know, we wanted to improve our level of influence. Obviously, we're fairly handy with numbers. But I mean, if someone said that when I started training as an accountant, I'd be learning things about behavioral science and trying to educate myself I, I, and that's where your book came in I thought it was a really great way of um, getting the theory across in a very practical manner and uh, that's what that's what you're doing if some of our audits were trying to scratch the surface a bit more on behavioral science mm -hmm. you know what would be some good resources or, or baby steps to start taking to, to get better uh, understanding of it well, it, that's a really hard question for me to answer without sounding self-serving because, of course, I wrote a book to do that, to try and make this stuff really accessible. So, you know, of course, I would say that would be a good place to start. But it, there's another book that's just come out recently that I really, really like. Actually, it's been out for some years in French, but it's just been published in English okay. by Olivier Siboni. 
S-I-B-O-N-Y. Uh, the title is You're About to Make a Terrible Mistake. It goes deeper into the stuff that we've just talked about in terms of the cognitive biases that we all have and then what you can do uh, with that. And it's funny. You know, it's, it's got a, he's got a great sense of humor. He's got a wry sense of humor and he's got lots of stories in there. So I think that, you know, that's, that's a nice companion piece that goes deeper into decision-making piece. And then if you're more interested in how do you perform and, uh, your best and, and boost your professional performance, productivity, well-being, then that's probably more my kind of, uh, my, my side of things. Hey, no, thanks for that recommendation, Caroline. I will put that into the show notes for our audience. And, yeah, absolutely. And Caroline, you've been uh, sharing great advice with us. I mean, what's been the best bit of advice you feel you've ever received? I've been really lucky to have a lot of great mentors over the years. There was probably the first time that I received some really solid career advice that I remember was actually from Mervyn King, who mm. was the chief economist at the Bank of England. And he was my boss and later, of course, ended up uh, as the governor. But this was before that time. And I was agonizing over whether to do a PhD. I was and I was boring everybody with whether I should do it or not, because I was already starting to think I'm not sure about the academic side of economics. I love the practical application. And he, he said, look, I don't need you to have a PhD, but, uh, you know, it's a big decision. And what I've always found with big decisions is you make the decision. Don't tell anybody what you've decided. Sit with it for five days. Wake up every morning. Notice how you feel about having made that decision. I mean, this was a remarkable advice because it was from someone that we would all think of as being very highly analytical, but he was tuned into the sense of the whole self and the fact that you need to be comfortable and excited and happy about the choices you're making. And uh, that was wonderful advice. I didn't do the PhD in the end. <laughs> okay, thanks for answering my next question. Yeah, but I know I, I, I guess I guess there's I much. Did two, I did two years. I yeah, did two yeah. years in MPhil. Yeah, MPhil. Uh, yeah. yeah, I was. Um, yeah, I, we did research for the show. Like you know, I had sort of guessed, but uh, no, th thanks for confirming. That. <laughs> yeah, but that but, was that was that was great. You know, yeah. since we've been talking about decision making, that's that's one piece of advice I'd pull out. Yeah, no, that, that that's good, and I think I think that's at least the minimum that we should put in for you know if it's impacting our career and our yeah. happiness, and it's a huge commitment. It's it's important to know how we feel ourselves, and um, yeah, uh, I would say it's uh, I think um, it's interesting. Uh, Katie, my wife, started doing counselling, getting her uh, psychotherapy. That's it. So and, and counselling, yeah. so going back to college to do that, and um, I, I get bombarded with this question: oh, How does that make you feel? You know, and it's just like now ingrained in my psyche that it, it's just rubbing off on everyone around. But it's very important is that it's got to be able to yeah. sit right with you. And that's a perfect yeah. time too. If you don't have the energy to put into it when you jump out of bed in the morning first thing, then is it really the right yeah. decision? Now we just need to engender that a bit in terms of our, our, our workplaces. <laughs> it's like, are we really behind <laughs> this decision? Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, exactly. yeah, you know, and engender that. And I think that that's sort of where I suppose a lot of our work's going. It's not just about the numbers anymore. It's about yeah. being able to get people to buy into it and the message and, and the influence that goes with it. So, Carla, th thanks for that advice. And I suppose, look, if some of our audience wish to continue the conversation, where's the best place to f find out more about you and uh, connect with you and continue the conversation? Well, that's a nice question. I'm active off on most social media platforms apart from Instagram. So you can find me, you can follow me on Twitter, you can follow me on LinkedIn, you can follow me at my professional a Facebook page if that's what you prefer and I I tend to post um, every day or every other day resources and ideas on you know the application practical application of behavioral science in the workplace so uh, if any of that sounds interesting I'd be delighted to see you there awesome and, and again we will find and put those links into the show notes as well 
And uh, Caroline, you've been giving us fantastic advice and uh, really appreciate that. And, and you know, don't need to feel immodest about the book. The book is great, you know, so I highly recommend our audience go at least check it out and uh, and even let me know how you get on because, again, it's, it's been recommended a few times on our show. But in terms of audience, would you perhaps maybe have any parting thoughts as we wrap up? I'd just amplify a couple of things we've touched on earlier in the conversation, I think. Um, first of all, that we have much more control than we often think about the challenging aspects of our professional lives. We just have to understand a bit more about how our poor brains work and what it takes for them to function at their best. And second, I think it really is worth investing in learning more about yourself so that you know what it takes to get the best out of yourself every day. I feel that analytical people sometimes think it's a a nice to have, a kind of soft thing to invest in your own well-being and enjoyment of work. But Actually, the evidence is really clear that we, we perform better and we have much more impact if we found a way to operate at work that gives us energy rather than just takes it. So there isn't a trade-off between impact and enjoyment in the long run. I think that's a great way to sign off this, uh, this interview. So Caroline, thank you so much uh, for coming on and investing your time today and strengthening the numbers. My pleasure. So there you have it. Hope you enjoyed today's show. If you'd like to know more about our guests today, their bio, and follow up on the resources mentioned during the show, you can find all the relevant links and more at sitnshow.com. There you'll also be able to get access to earlier shows, read the latest blogs. There's also an opportunity to subscribe to our newsletter, which will give you heads up as to when the next show is coming out, latest events, news, and anything that's going to be relevant to help you have a fun, rewarding, and successful career in finance and accounting. And just before you go, we really appreciate your feedback. If there's something we can do better on the show, something that's not working, or something you'd like to see, even a guest you'd like for us to invite onto the show, someone who you think might be able to benefit you more and also the rest of our community, please let me know. You can email me. I'm at andrew at sitnshow.com or feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn. Just drop me a message so I know how you found me and we can connect. And really, it's our community that will make the show. If we keep engaging and driving each other on, we'll keep on building our strength in the numbers. When all is said and done, if we can do the numbers better and finance better, we'll create more opportunities for ourselves, our friends, our families, our communities and our businesses. So until next time, have a good rest of the week. Take care and let's keep building our strength in the numbers.